You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, welcome uh, to the last of our three uh, lessons here on trying to learn more about what Christmas is all about concerning these great prayers and hymns of our faith. And uh, I looked at our first Sunday uh, in the great prayers in the scriptures that are associated with Christmas, Magnificat and so on, and looked at a couple of great hymns, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, last week I sort of got distracted a lot in my own mind, and so I wasn't <laughs> focused enough. I wandered around too much, and I didn't get as far as I wanted to, and I have more that I need to catch up with today. And, and that's I'm going to start where I left off last time by looking at these great prayers in the Book of Common Prayer, especially in the 1549 and then the 1662 versions of the Book of Common Prayer. All right, uh, I, I hope if I stay on course enough to be able to do more analysis of this great poem and prayer here by Gerard Manley Hopkins, which is what I've been considering to be the theme of this three sessions. And that is, make me pure, Lord, thou art holy. Make me meek, Lord, thou art lowly. Now beginning and always, now begin on Christmas Day. Hopefully we'll get to that a little bit more. Bear with me as I move through this. I think we stopped here last time, I believe. If not, we'll repeat ourselves, which is good for me because I forget a lot. But uh, this is the second Sunday uh, prayer in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And it is a Cranmer prayer that was uh, in the original 1549 prayer. Um, Yeah, he composed it in 1549 and it was brought over. And it's considered, which last Sunday was the second Sunday, in fact this was read, I believe, in the worship service, the Bible Sunday. And Cramer has this in the 1549 and then is picked up after his death into the 1662 version as a way of emphasizing the church's commitment to the scriptures here, as a way of understanding the great works of God and our proper responses to God. It seems a little odd that this one here would be about the Bible, but within the season of Advent. But let's look at it. You probably, I know you know it well, but let's think about it. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I suspect most of you are familiar with the history of the church at the time when Thomas Cranmer was the archbishop. There was what was called the Reformation going on in the the Church of England at the time. Henry VIII had already done his, whatever he did, mess. (laughs) And the church was trying to sort that through. And there was the battle between, you know, for lack of better terms, high and low church, the more Catholic orientation, the more Reformation orientation. And Cranmer was very much part of that Reformation orientation. And that is shaped by the influence of Luther and Calvin, and that is the the importance of scriptural knowledge and our understanding of our faith. Not just a statement of faith, which is always important. Luther and Calvin never denied the statements of faith, 
but they also said we have to be very versed in Scripture. And so this great grammar prayer is trying to ground our knowledge upon God, but in particular here during this Advent season, which is the beginning of the Christian year. The first Sunday of Advent is the beginning of the Christian year. At least the Western Church, the Eastern Church, starts it with um, uh, Holy Week. But be that as it may, uh, the importance of Scripture. All right, uh, just to illustrate this a little bit more, why this is important, I think, for us to consider, that is here during this great time of celebration of the birth of Christ, we also focus on the importance of Scripture. Uh, I may be wrong about this, but uh, it was the best interpretation I could come up with at the time. Um, Somebody asked me, and we were involved in a conversation about the future of the Episcopal Church in America, and there was a lot of consternation about the direction that the overall national church is going, which I I suspect you're not unfamiliar with that. You're very familiar with that. And it's been going on for a number of years. There have been all kinds of splits and schisms and and acrimony and suspicion and so on, hardships and so on. And somebody asked me, almost kind of like an insider outsider, what I thought about the future of the Episcopal Church. Now, like I said, I, this is my interpretation on this. It, there, I believe there are other ways in which we can look at this, but I thought that as long as the Episcopal Church stays with Cramer's Book of Common Prayer, there will always be a great future for it. There'll always be a great future for it. And that is because this great book, this prayer book, it's got the Psalter, it's got the seasons, it's got these magnificent prayers that are so astute and articulate and revealing and insightful about the basis of our faith will undergird a church that will live throughout the generations. And so that was my claim on that. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if that's going to be the case or not, but I think that the Book of Common Prayer, especially the 1549 and the 1662 versions, and the 76 version is not bad, but uh, really is a treasure for the denomination, very much so. Now, this, uh, this is 79, not 76. This is the version that you would read in the Book of Common Prayer that is up in the sanctuary as well. And that is on the second Sunday of Advent. Merciful God, who did send thy messengers, the prophets to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Now, I don't know who wrote this. It's not a Cranmer prayer. I'm pretty sure it's not a Cranmer prayer. I've looked and I couldn't find any authorship for this. Uh, however, though, it is patterned after the great Cranmer prayers. It starts off with a, a, a description of what God has done. It then moves to a petition, and then it ends with a praise for what God has done. It, that's the basic structure of these great colics. That is, when people come together in a collection and pray. But several things about this that I like. Uh, it ties it into the prophets. That is, Christ has a history. Christ just didn't show up de novo. Christ is part of Israel. Christ is of the line of David. And that should not be forgotten. I mentioned this the first time uh, when we looked at that wonderful hymn that was sung this morning. It will be sung at the 11 o'clock hour too. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Uh, and it ties it in with Israel. Now, I know for many people that's rather controversial, and of course there's been tremendous mischief and harm done by church towards Jews and so on. However, though, our faith is grounded in the history of Israel at that time, and it should not be forgotten. Christ is a historical being. He lived and moved, just like you and I live and move. And that's part of our faith, 
that Christ came within a group of people that had a story, and that story started with Abraham and Sarah. And Christ is a continuation, a fulfillment of that story, of which we have been adopted into. And so this connects Jesus here to the prophets. He's not, uh, just as an aside here, I might have mentioned this two weeks ago. I suspect most of you are familiar with this. One of the early heresies that Christianity really fought against, and in some ways it won a little bit and lost a little bit with it, and I still think this heresy is still around quite a bit, and that's called Gnosticism. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, Gnosticism, was a religious movement, sort of eclectic. It picked up from other sort of faiths, uh, but it tried to call itself genuine Christianity. And it was ahistorical. That is, the emphasis was on the spirit alone, not on the flesh. In fact, the flesh was evil. The world was evil. And religion is to get you out of the restrictions and darkness and the malices of the world and so on. And so that type of faith doesn't ground Jesus in a real incarnation, in a real history of people, in a real story. Well, it's wrong, even though it may be inspiring for many people, and a lot of people may like the idea that down deep enough is really a spark of the divine, and I can liberate myself from the, you know, the, the horrible things of history and so on. But our faith is that God got down in the midst of the horrible things of history, and that the Christmas story is that these prophets who proclaimed that a Messiah would come, was actually born in a manger there in Bethlehem. And so I think that's a very important part of our faith, which this great prayer picks up. Gives grace to their warnings, forsakes our sins, it wasn't just for show. And then finally here, who liveth reigneth with the Holy Spirit, a, a strong notion of the Trinity, which I would say, of course, all the great doctrines are essential, but the key doctrine is the doctrine of the Trinity. It connects all these doctrines into one coherent belief system. And this prayer here has Jesus connected here with the triune God. Okay, the third Sunday of Advent, uh, which is this Sunday, uh, the 1662 version, which is taken. Uh, actually, uh, Cranmer did not write this prayer, though he translated this prayer. It's a Latin prayer. He translated it. Uh, for this 1549 version, and uh, it was picked up and changed a little bit for this version. O Lord Jesus Christ, who at thy first coming didst send thy messenger to prepare the way before thee, grant that the ministers and stewards of thy mercies may likewise so prepare and make ready thy way by turning the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that at thy second coming, to judge the world, we may be found an acceptable people in thy sight, who liveth and reigneth, reigneth with the Father and the Holy Spirit, ever one God, world without end. Amen. A couple of, I think, very insightful things about this. One, it's one sentence. I wish I could write this well. I'm a horrible writer, and I get paid to write. <laughs> I'm supposed to be able to write well. But it's very difficult, uh, I think, to write with such meter and flow and content. This is... What, what you know, English teachers would talk, call us cumulative writing. It's very packed. There's sort of layers here, all put into one sentence with a flow to it. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why Cramer's prayers, even though this this is not, well, yes, it is. Uh, it's a translation. Um, it's such a powerful uh, influence upon us because of the literary value. I, I could go off on a long time, but just give me. I can time myself. Fifteen seconds here. I think we think best when we think in somewhat of a whole way. 
We like to see the whole of things, not just the individual parts of things. Well, what this great prayer does in its parts is to capture a whole experience. A whole experience. And uh, his effort, I mean, his ability here to communicate these great truths in one sort of breath. I, I probably couldn't do it, but you could take a deep breath and read it all at one time. Is to capture, I think, the organic wholeness of our faith. But, again, it's tied here to the fact that uh, Christ was prepared, obvious allusion there to John the Baptist, and that his ministers and stewards of thy mysteries may likewise so prepare and ready thy way. That is, the clergy, those who are called, those who are ordained and set apart. Their particular function here, as it says here, is stewards of thy mysteries, not of their mysteries. That is, they are not to communicate what they feel or think. They are to communicate what God feels and thinks. This is the mysteries of God. This is the commission that all people who take on the responsibility, not just the ordained and the clergy, but any lay person who bears some sense of responsibility to continue the work of the church. We're communicating God's mysteries. Uh, uh, That Christ is coming to judge the world. I like this one. It connects it to the second advent as well. I think one of the most significant things about the sanctuary is upstairs, the stained glass windows behind the altar. It's, It's the essence of our faith. You know, the, the central painting is the communion. This is my body, this is my blood. The one to the left, as you look at it, is the birth, the first advent. And the one on the right, Christ's return, second advent. When we take of the mysteries of the communion, we remember the one who came. And we also anticipate the one who will come again. These are the mysteries of our faith. And then finally, again, like the other great prayers, it is a Trinitarian prayer. Christ is lifted up into the triune reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the 79 version. Um, <clears throat> just quickly, it's a it's a different prayer. I think it's good, but I'm, I would vote for Cranmer, though, if I had to vote. <laughs> Stir up thy power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are solely hindered by our sins, let thy bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be honor and glory, world without end. Before I forget this, it was on that previous prayer. World without end. It's an odd phrase, a world without end. Uh, It does show up in the Psalms. I forget which Psalm it is. I don't know, maybe in the 70s or something. has that phrase, world without end. It is a way to try to capture eternity in a real lively sense. That is, you can think of eternity as endless nothingness, right? But our eternity with God is an active relationship. Which means you've got to have a place in which there can be a relationship. A world, so to speak. Now, of course, it will be a different kind of world, as we well know. But it will be an environment. This phrase, world without end, I think, is a way to capture two great truths. One, our eternal life with God will not have an end. And two, it is a relationship. It's an involvement, an engagement, in which we will not only be able to recognize God and sing praises to God, I really think we'll also recognize and relate to one another as the great communion of saints for eternity. And so that phrase, in a sort of a metaphorical way, captures, I think, both of those great truths. Uh, But also, uh, I think another great 
idea about this wonderful prayer is that uh, we are sorely hindered by our sins. Sorely hindered. Do you ever hear that much anymore? Nobody's hindered by anything these days other than not being able to do what they want to do. Uh, we don't emphasize the fact that we have a sort of hindrance, an inherent kind of drawback or countercurrent in our life, that there's something always undermining our best of intentions. And if we really are honest in our self-reflection, we see that that comes from our very will itself. Not that will, but our will. Uh, that our very freedom, which we obviously want to use properly and that we have to use and be responsible with, is the place from which our biggest flaw comes as well. I know I'm, I'm opening up a can of worms, but it's not that we have a sin problem. We are a sin problem. You don't hear that much anymore, that kind of notion. You know, in one of the great colics there in the morning prayer, there's that in, that, in the 1662 version, and there is no health in us. Remember that phrase? It's not in the 79 version. And I think that's a weakness on its part. There needs to be recognition that though as hard as we work, and, and human history shows this, have we ever found utopia? Have we settled Shangri-La? Have we established a kingdom of earth? No, even the best of intentions by the best of people ends up as a set of ruins or as a, as a calamity or disaster in some way or another. And not to admit that, that there is no health in us, is not to appreciate the full grace that is given us. That I cannot solve my problem, but you know my problem is solved. And this is what Christmas is telling us. Your problem's solved. You couldn't, we couldn't, Rome couldn't, they couldn't. None of us can. We work hard, we struggle. We're just like, you know, like, like Adam, you know, when he was first expelled out of the garden. By the sweat of your brow, you'll labor all your days. And we do. We labor all our days, even when we're right. And we're good. And holy at trying to do it. It's still a labor. But Christ has come as it says here, and has given us a bountiful grace and mercy. I'm going to pick up on this theme when we look at these great hymns of joy. That should elicit from us. That should draw from the depths of our souls a sense of great gratitude and joy for something has been given to us that we couldn't give to ourselves. Uh, fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, this is a... One second. This is a... Cranmer translated this one in 1549, and it comes from the old Salisbury liturgy. You know, you've been to the great cathedral in Salisbury? It, it, it will make you weep. <laughs> At least it did me. Uh, you walk in there and you think, what a beautiful place. Just pregnant with meaning and power to it. It's just an overwhelming place. But it was at the heart of great liturgy for centuries and centuries. It's called the, um, the Serum liturgy. For some reason, Serum comes from Salisbury. I don't know how it does, but it's associated with the great liturgical traditions there in the great cathedral of Salisbury. Well, uh, he translated it into this. O Lord, raise up, we pray thee, thy power, and come among us and with great might succor us, that whereas through our sins and wickedness we are sore let and hindered in running the race that is set before us. Thy bountiful grace and mercy may speedily help and deliver us through the satisfaction of thy Son, our Lord, in whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be honor and glory, 
world without end. Once again, this great Trinitarian ending. In fact, I know I shouldn't mandate this, but uh, this would be a strong suggestion to anyone who would pray in public. This would be a good way to end any prayer, I think. Assuring us that our faith is grounded in the great revelatory acts of the triune God. Okay, but a couple of things I think that are significant about this prayer. And it's got this, this structure. <clears throat> it describes something about God, then a petition, and then a praise to God. And this describes that, <clears throat> that God has risen up God's power. That he might succor us. We don't use that word much anymore. I, I don't know. I never hear it used. And you know what it means? To succor something? What? To nourish, to help along, to start something, to succor something is give something strength enough to continue. Here, what Christmas is about is a strength that has been given us to help us to continue. That our faith doesn't stand on our own two feet, but on the great mercies and grace of God. And again, this great prayer here acknowledges our limitations. It's not an extolling of our goodness. Uh, I've heard sermons to this effect. Um, and I'm always thinking one what their books are reading to come up with this idea that Christmas is about you. It's about you or your greatness, your, your new hopes, your great expectations. That Christmas is about you finding some new light within your life. You, you don't need the incarnation of Jesus to do that. We, we can find that by, I don't know, winning the lottery maybe or picking the, the right football team. Those things may bring a little light into your life. But Christmas is not about us. Isn't it? I know it's, it's quite popular to slam our culture and how we treat this, uh, but uh, modern day Christmas celebrations is about us. It's all about us. But the Book of Common Prayer here, though, puts it all upon God. It's about what God has done. And it's for that reason, as we're going to see in just a minute here, that we can have this tremendous joy. And I love that phrase, thy bountiful grace and mercy. Bountiful. Full of bounty. It's not limited. God does not have a limited bucket of grace and mercy. That God will give you, you know, six pounds of grace and maybe four pounds of mercy. But once they're used up, you're on your own. It's bountiful. Full of bounty. It's endless, in other words. Nothing, as our faith says, Paul so graphically depicts in Romans 8, can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And he says not even our death can do that. That's how bountiful God's grace and mercy. Everything we know and try comes to an end, and we have to factor that in, even in our own lives. Part of being a wise person is knowing that we will die, and we have to see our life in some sense that it will come to an end. But... God's grace and mercy in itself, inherently, by definition, has no end to it. God's patience is just limitless. It's amazing. Just parenthetically here, of of, of all the great characteristics that's described about God in Scripture that reinforces this idea is the unbelievable patience that God has for longingness, for bearingness that God has. Look at how patient and forbearing God was with Israel and patient and forbearing God is with all of us. Why is that? I, I, have a, I try to be patient, but it's a full-time job, isn't it? 
just parenthetically, I don't know if I'll say this since I'm being taped or not, being a parent, and I'm not telling you things you haven't learned yourself, uh, required patience, didn't it? Otherwise, we'd all gone nuts. Our children would have gone nuts because of us. Be that as it may, God's parenthood, God's commitment to us, knows no limit. Hence, God shows tremendous patience to us. All right, again, tied here to the great triune acts of God. 1779 version, We beseech thee, Almighty God, to purify our consciences by thy daily visitation. Interesting. Here on the fourth Sunday of Advent, God came a little over 2,000 years ago, and God's coming right now. That when thy Son, our Lord, cometh, he may find us in a mansion prepared for himself through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth for thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Now that phrase, now and forever, is another way to capture what the metaphor world without end also tries to capture. And that is our relationship with God is without end. It will last forever. A couple of interesting things about this. Purify our conscience by thy daily visitation. I think our conscience is the largest mountain that we'll ever try to climb. Uh, People can conquer and do a whole lot of things. Build great bridges, create great businesses do great works of art, all kinds of things. But the conscience is always a difficult thing to master. And the reason why, whatever that conscience may be, what do we call it? Still small voice, sense of right and wrong within us. That part of us that comes to our most thorough, honest, translucent self-analysis, the ability that we have to reflect upon our deepest motives would be what our conscience is, is also part of our problem. A lot of people think, yeah, you've got a sin problem, you've done some things wrong, just let your conscience be your God, your conscience is clear and good and pure, never misses a lick and all that. Well, who's that? Where'd that come from? Our conscience is as much part of our problem as our desires and intentions are. And so, when, when this great prayer here asks for our conscience to be purified... We're asking the Lord here to come and do such a rigorous, thorough, probing analysis, examination, scrutiny. And sometimes that can be incredibly taxing, can't it? It can drive you into, the, as St. John of the Cross said, a dark night of the soul to allow yourself to be so exposed by the probing of God. But what Christmas tells us here in being visited daily here by the one who came and who will come and is coming again today, that is possible for us. It's possible for our conscience to be purified. That's a great promise, a great gift that gives, is given to us here. And that is through here, through Jesus Christ. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit. Um, <clears throat> this is the Christmas Day prayer of 1662, which comes from... Hold on one second. Um, actually, this prayer... Uh, Cranmer translated as well. He got it from the Sarum liturgy rite, that is the Salisbury liturgy. And it has an old history to it. It perhaps it has roots back to the 6th century in the Gregorian sacramentary. sacramentary. Uh, and when Cranmer translated it, he gave it a little bit of a Reformation twist. Almighty God who has given us thy only begotten Son, to take our nature upon him, and as at this time to be born of a pure virgin, 
Grant that we, being regenerate and made thy children by adoption and grace, may daily be renewed by thy Holy Spirit. Through the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the same spirit, ever one God, world without end. What part of that prayer reflects the influence of the Reformation? Uh, well, I, I, yes, but actually I'm fishing for something else. <clears throat> Grant that we being regenerate, the regenerate church, not just the state church, not just the local church, not just those who are on the roads, all Christians being those who are baptized by the state church. That's not it. Here the church is the regenerate church. The church has been born again. The church has been made anew. That is, their conscience are purified. Those who have been adopted, as Nancy said, into the faith here are new people. They're different people. They're oriented differently than others in the world. They have an energy, a hope, a focus, a power to them that comes from these divine mysteries here. That's what the regenerate church is. And again, Christmas here promises that we become a new people. A new people. That's quite a... Quite a Quite a bar to jump over that we're not, we're not supposed to be greedy like those other people. We're not supposed to be vain. Uh, we're not supposed to be given in to hatred and acrimony. Well, just by the way, uh, I know there's always been a lot of hate and acrimony in the world, but it seems like it's at, on steroids lately in our culture. Don't you think so? How, I mean, it's not just that there are hateful people. It's being rationalized and justified and promoted as a good thing to hate people. Well, uh, that's usually a step towards uh, very, you know, kind of deleterious social consequences when we begin to baptize hate. Okay, be that as it may, we're regenerate. There's no way a Christian can justify hating anyone, no, regardless what political party or, or football team they're on. <clears throat> no way we can rationalize being greedy and selfish and vain and arrogant and exploitive and cruel and oppressive and violent. No way. Now, they may but not this group of people. Why? Why is that? Why be an idiot in comparison to what other people think? You, you all have heard of the great philosopher. And in many ways, he had some, I think, some serious things to say. Is Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher. Who was, he's famous, even though he wrote a whole lot and had a lot of things to say for it, the phrase, God is dead. But he once said that it's okay to be a Christian as long as you don't want to be a man or a woman. As long as you don't want to be adult, as long as you don't want to really be serious about your life, go ahead and be an infant, and a juvenile, or irresponsible, lazy, cowardly. Yeah, go ahead. That's what you want to do. Go ahead and be a Christian. Well, uh, in some ways, from his perspective, I can see why he said that. From a perspective that baptizes greed and dominance and oppression, this idea that we are committed to worship someone born in a poor manger that we're committed to the mystery of faith that says we are regenerate because we are humble and meek and peacemakers, that we are powerful because we serve and love one another from the perspective of Nietzsche, from a perspective of a culture that rationalizes hate, that does seem like weakness, doesn't it? Well, we have to be unapologetic about that. Why? Because it's good for us? No, not necessarily. Because that's what Christmas is about. And I think this great prayer captures that. 
I'm going to skip this because I only have uh, about 10 more minutes here and I, there are a couple of things I really want to get through. I um, uh, love these, once again, these great prayers uh, by Thomas Cranmer and also in the, the, 17, I mean, the 1979 version as well. Uh, I'm going to look at two hymns of joy associated with Christmas and talk a little bit about them. Uh, this one is a magnificent hymn, uh, Joy to the World. Um, it, it's hard to read this without wanting to sing it, so if any of you want to break out and song, help yourself. It's Christmas. Uh, I'm going to read these and do, try to do justice to them. They're great poetry, by the way. Uh, and then go back and talk about Isaac Watts a little bit. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Uh, you know, Isaac Watts is one of the great contributions to the church, in my opinion. Uh, he was a first-class theologian, by the way. He wrote 30 tracts altogether, and he wrote treatises on psychology as well. And I'll talk about why in just a second. Uh, but it's his great hymns that has undergirded so much of our faith. And this is one of them, Isaac Watts. Uh, as you see there, he died in 1748. Uh, lived 74 years, but he... Uh, Sit down for a second. He was a most unusual person. He was a child genius. He, by age four, he had learned Latin. Right? Age seven, Greek. Age nine, Hebrew. And age 13, French. But that doesn't come easy, by the way. I'm still trying to get English correct. Uh, he, he, was, he was a prodigy, no doubt about it. He was a genius. And he had a tremendous commitment uh, to give praise to God throughout all of his life. Now, he struggled uh, physically and emotionally as well, psychiatrically. Uh, he was short, and at least it was said of him, he had a, sort of a disproportionate head. Uh, he looked rather strange, uncomely. Uh, though he wanted to get married, uh, he was turned down a number of times. Um, and I'm not sure why, but he never really found a heartmate that he was seeking. Um, <clears throat> and he became a pastor of a church in London called Frank... Hold on one second. Um, the Mark Lane Independent Church. So he was a nonconformist. And he was a pastor of that church for about nine years and had to resign because of psychiatric problems. I, I did a little research. I couldn't find out any sort of official diagnosis of what that may be. But it was grave enough, uh, strappling enough on him, that it prevented him from fulfilling his, his duties as a pastor. But it also, I think, reveals, you know, but, and, and many of you know what all this is about, people who struggle with these kinds of issues, the great inner suffering that he must have gone through. And uh, though all of us at one time or another have, have suffered some depression and loss that we go through, and, and those are dark moments, but there are some people just because of the makeup of their, their minds and their body uh, do that constantly. The problem is global, not local. 
And you can imagine the pain. I've known people, there were people in our family that were this way. The problem was global. There was no way they could find any kind of release from the, the emotional pain that they were going through. And he was this way. But here's what makes this even greater. He writes this tremendous song. Now, um, you know, joy to the world. Um, you know Freud? Do you know him? Everybody knows something about Freud. Any of you remember what he said religion is? His definition of religion? It's uh, well, opiate car marks. Yeah. Similar though. Uh, they had similar ideas. And that is Freud said that religion is a wish projection. We can't take our life. Our problems are too grave. There's no release. And so we wish for hope for solutions, for redemption. And we project our wishes to get out of our melee upon some eternal screen, and that's what God is. No no revelation, no substance. It's just a psychological release. And so for Freud felt like religion was an escape mechanism that kept us in sort of an adolescent state. You can never grow up if you're religious. You can never accept your own fate as long as you have this wish projection. And so you know, his first step is to try to get you out of religion Okay, be that as it may, here is a man who, who obviously needed relief, who, who was in the strangleholds of great inner suffering, and he couldn't get away from it. And so his faith was, was not a denial of that. It was an affirmation, and once again, this is the Christian message, that even within his soul, as tormented as it could be, came a message, came a reality. Something happened to him. Something came into his very inner turmoil of a man plighted by this kind of psychological duress that equipped him, solicited from his heart, nurtured his soul to erupt in this great, great hymn, Joy to the World. That God comes into our darkness and gives us reason to sing joy, not as an escape from our darkness, but as a way to bring healing to our darkness. And I think that's what this wonderful hymn says. It's not a denial of the misery of the world. This is not a fantasy escape from the, 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 the suffering, the cruelties of things. It is a way of going into the world and saying, here's something, here's some hope, here's something. All right, a, a couple of things about it, I want to say this. You know, joy is a, a good word. Uh, it's, it's a great biblical word. It's a little tricky word. Um, you know, if, like at lunch today, you eat a good meal and you sit back and you feel somewhat content. You've got your hunger needs met. Let's say it was tasty food and you got your palate met. And so, but you wouldn't call that joy, would you? No. You call it, maybe I'm happy. And a lot of times I eat a good meal and I feel kind of happy. But I wouldn't call it joy. All right. Uh, if you, um, uh, I don't know anything about any of you in this way, but let's say you're an Alabama fan and at the last second, you know, touchdown pass is thrown, and you win the national championship for the 49th time in a row. <laughs> and everybody in the world is against you. But you feel what? You do feel some joy about that. You do. Something has happened that you didn't know was going to happen. You thought it would, and then all of a sudden it has, and the proper response to that is joy. And therefore, all these, these fans will just jump up and down. You've been there. I've done that with my own sports team. There is a sense of 
joy to that, but it's partial because you know tomorrow you got to pay your taxes and you got to you know fix your car and you got to you know fix the heater and I, life goes on. It's a partial. You wouldn't ever expect it to be fulfilled. You'd think that somebody was so imbalanced if they left a football game like that and think this is the end of my life. I don't want to live anymore. This is complete joy. Now uh, I've witnessed two births. I have a great granddaughter and all that. And I feel great joy. I can remember that with my birth of our two sons, what joy came into my life. And it's still there. It's a better joy than winning football games. Why? Because it's more complete. It's more complete. Well, I think that somewhat captures what Isaac Watts is talking about, joy to the world. But there's an added feature to this that makes it unique. You could call it Christian joy, spiritual joy. It's not just a feeling of completeness but it's the feeling of adoration as well. I, I adore what's happened here. It gives me such completeness. Kind of a moral trait to it as well. Because of this encounter, this, this presentation that's been given to us in Christ, yes, we should feel emotionally this tremendous sense of completeness, but we should also feel morally the obligation to adore what has happened. That we've been... We've been, given, we've been given a gift, but we've also been given a summons at the same time. Christian joy is not only the sense of fulfillment, it's also the requirement of adoration. And that's what makes it unique. And I think Isaac Watts really captures this so well. One of my favorite, and I only gave you two here, is the second one. I like the fact that it even has the fields, the floods, the rocks, the hills, and we could even add dogs and cats and you know cows and pigs and trees and rivers, all these things are a part of this great testimony. You know, I've I got only a couple more minutes before I leave, uh, hang up here. Um, one of the things I like about the Christmas nativity scenes is that they bring animals in there. It's joy to the world, not joy to us. It's part of their redemption as well. That God's power and intent and, and commitment is not just to liberate us, but is to bring fulfillment and joy to these animals and to the rocks and the hills as well. Go through Scripture and see how many times that even the hills sing to the glory of God. And that the animals are incorporated in God's great solution at the end. That they're part of God's great redemptive plan of a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, so it's probably good to bring in animals in Christmas uh, to see that it, you know the joy is also theirs to be experienced as well. All right, let me move on here. Uh, another great hymn, uh, O Come All Ye Faithful. Uh, it is a Latin hymn, actually, <clears throat> written by a man in the, uh, near the end of the 18th century named John Francis Wade and was translated in 1841 by a priest named Frederick Oakley. Uh, the king of Portugal, John IV, loved it and uh, created a sort of a hymnal around it. It probably is dated back to the 16th century by Cistercians who wrote it. Now, uh, just historically, uh, John Francis Wade was a Jacobite. Uh, I had to go back and read again what all that meant. But that was part of a... Uh, Will probably knows more about this than I, but it was part of a, a, a sort of a semi-rebellious group in England at the time who followed Bonnie Prince Charles and they had to be clandestine and some people think uh, I don't think it's right but some people think this was sort of a veiled attempt uh, 
to communicate some political treaties. Well, if so, uh, it, it does it in a great theological way. Uh, but this hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful, uh, just quickly, um, you know, again, it ties it in history. We go to Bethlehem to do it. Uh, he's the king of angels. And then there's that great chorus, let us adore him. We have joy, but it's also adoration as well. Our focus is on him for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We should adore that. Adoration, I could, uh, what, what does it mean to adore something? Appreciate, be grateful. Uh, be thankful, be committed, be defined by, shaped by, if you adore something. If it's trivial, you'll never adore things that are trivial or just sort of flippant in your life. You adore things that are serious and defining. Well, this is how Christ is to us. Uh, and again, the angels get into this. I mentioned this, I think, uh, two Sundays ago. It seems like every time a great event occurs, angels show up singing. Here, they, uh, this great hymn is, in a sense, replicating the sounds of the angels here. And, yeah, Lord, we greet Thee, born this happy morning, Jesus, to Thee be all glory, Word of the Father, now in flesh, appearing. Very much Christologically centered, grounded in the union of Word and flesh, Spirit and body in Jesus Christ, that our faith is here. I promised you that I wanted to say a little bit more about this great prayer by one of my heroes here, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Give me one minute and we'll go. But the Bethlehem star may lead me to the side of him who freed me from the self that I have been. Sort of a reference to the Magi. In a sense, we're all Magi's following some great promise, some sense of hope and glory. We're looking for something to illuminate what will give us great fulfillment in our lives. We come to Easter like the Magi following something. We're looking for for completion and fulfillment. Then, make me pure, Lord. Thou art holy. Our holiness comes, I mean, our purity comes from God's holiness. You become a clearer conscience, uh, more transparent, uh, more faithful by uh, uh, two things. One, by learning about holiness, what God expects of us, but also participating in holiness. And that's one great thing about the Episcopal tradition. A lot of other traditions, you have sacraments. There ought to be a sacrament on Christmas Day. What is a sacrament? A tangible wing, a tangible way of embodying holiness. We need these kinds of experience to be sort of basked, clothed, washed with these experiences. Uh, make me meek, Lord, thou art worthy, now beginning and always now begin on Christmas Day. And I'll conclude with that. I pray that something begins with you on Christmas Day. That began last Christmas and prior Christmas and on and on, all the way back 2,000 years ago to that great un, unrecognized, unassuming, unpresupposing manger that something began there, which is our holiness, which is our freedom, and which is our true joy. Let me close with a prayer. O oh, gracious Lord, Thou art indeed holy, and we know this to be the case in Christ our Lord, who took on the flesh so that we all may take upon Thee. I pray Your blessings upon us, that indeed may us begin anew on this Christmas day, 
And may the holiness of, the, of that day radiate through all of our lives, that indeed we may share this. And this I pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.